Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Monday, October the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, we are joined in studio by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, and by Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou Macdonald. We talk about Brexit, what kind of Brexit does Sinn Féin really want, and how could Brexit, whether of the hard, soft or no-deal variety, affect the chances of a future border poll in Northern Ireland. But we begin with the presidential election campaign, which draws to a merciful conclusion later this week. Mary Lou MacDonald, you're very welcome. Do you find this presidential election quite as odd as I do? <laughs> it is a strange one. Um, I think it was always going to be a, a different kind of campaign, not least because the political establishment didn't want an election and then they didn't really want a campaign either. So you had this bizarre situation of candidates refusing to turn up for high-profile debates. Very little postering, very little leafleting. Very little of the signals that say to the general public, hello, there is an election happening and that actually naturally, cumulatively builds a bit of momentum or a bit of curiosity or a bit of water cooler discussions, if that's not too corny. So, yeah, uh, so it's different in that regard. Different also in that the incumbent wishes to return to office. So last time out, there was a vacancy this time round. uh, There wasn't to be. I remember when I was growing up, the presidency and in the tradition of Irish politics, the, the presidency has been regarded almost as a, the political equivalent of a carriage clock awarded to somebody for service and for loyalty and so on. And that's, that's OK. I think the two Marys came along and shook that up and actually demonstrated the, the vigour that Oris and can have. Um, I think Michael D. Higgins has done a good job for the last seven years. He's a person that I personally have a huge regard for. But I am concerned that we're resuming normal service and that the Oris now is regarded as a thank you to, to an, somebody to for elder, a long... An elderly gentleman yeah. in the park, is that what you're saying? Well, no, to somebody with long uh, service rather than seeing it as the highest paid elected official in the land a constitutional set of duties, ceremonial set of duties, but also real political potential at a time of big political challenges like the B word Brexit. Like the fact that constitutional change is now on the agenda for the island. I mean, the partition of the of the island, the border, is now front and centre in our political discourse. So we need an Oris that's up and at it that's alive, that's engaged and engaging. And Leonie the for me and for us as our candidate, is the right calibre, the right has the right skill set, has the right the right independence of mind uh, to take those challenges on. But isn't so the, that's why we ran and that's why we ran her. Well, here we are four or five days out and isn't the reality that Michael D. Higgins in all the polls we've seen so far has twice as many votes as all the other candidates combined. Together. So yeah. it's... It's, it's all over by the shouting. 
Well, he certainly has a very substantial lead uh, on all others. Um, but we have to have the election. So it's not over till it's over and the votes aren't even cast yet. And I think it's very, very important that people come out and vote. I mean, if we're going to talk about having a healthy political system or, or having some level of engagement and confidence between those that govern and those that are governed, uh, the basic building block of that is elections and participation in elections. But I have been struck, as I said to you, at the fact of people who otherwise will want to talk politics with you saying like, well, what's the point? And that raises really fundamental questions and doesn't say anything good um, about the political climate generally, but also about the perception of the office. If if this is going to cost us, what, eight million per annum or whatever the figure is, we need a return for that. And it has to be, with all due respect, more than garden parties as, you know, essential as meeting and greeting and, and that kind of hospitality is a big part of the role. I accept that it can't be its totality. Although, there to, be has fair, to be, although, although to be fair that. to Michael D. Higgins, for example, he I think he's widely regarded as doing a very good job during the uh, centenary commemorations, 1916. I think everybody accepts that, don't they? Yes, absolutely. And um, Michael D. is a man possessed of... Uh, and endowed with a very, very great intellect. He's a very thoughtful person. He has made uh, many, many very interesting interventions nationally and internationally. Uh, but I'm with Lee on this one. The one speech that Michael D. didn't make was to the houses of the Arachthus at a time when things were dire, at a time when respite grant uh, was being taken away, at a time when people lost the shirt off their back, the roof over their heads. I'm saying as a member of the Oireachtas, I would have appreciated and I think it was necessary for the president to address the houses of the Oireachtas as the voice of the people is, in those circumstances. His argument is that if he were to do so, he would be constricted in what he could say because he'd have to get government approval and you can't imagine the government today, Fine Gael Labour Coalition, allow him, lash them from the pedestal beside the Keon Corla in the Dáil. And his argument being, I went to the European Parliament because I was freer there to say what I wanted to say. So is that not a valid argument? No, like, I don't do, think do, so. Do I think Lee and Reid will be able to go into the chamber under a Fianna Fáil or a Fine Gael-led government and let rip on government policy? Well, if you recall, Mary Robinson went in and raised a number of very, very uh, neuralgic home truths she didn't let rip because mm. letting rip is not the presidential mm. thing to do. But, but the she, impression that she Lee has been given is that the president can let rip. The president, no, I think she has been talking about reminding legislators of their duty of care. She's been talking about a necessary uh, and within the boundaries of the Constitution, a tension between the government on the one hand with their job to do and the directly elected first citizen uh, on the other. And bear in mind, it, it is correct to say that, of course, the script has to be approved by government. But the division of the separation of powers is to do a number of things. Yes, to protect the prerogatives of the government, but also to protect the independence of the Uktharan. And it would be really quite something if a government of the day was to deny the first citizen uh, access to the houses of the Oireachtas or to simply say in blunt terms, you are not saying that. I mean, there's a real politique, but there's also the fact that uh, the, the office of the Uktharan is a constitutional office. It is the guardian of the constitution. So it's not simply, a, and I don't buy from Michael D. Well, I didn't do it because I wouldn't have been free to say what I have to say. And unfortunately, I think 
the suspicion might be that given that it was the Labour Party doing all of the hurting at that time because they were in government, one wonders, was it easier for the for the Uchtaran to go to other platforms to say broader things rather than confronting the day-to-day bread and butter reality of people who literally and all of us around this table know it because we all witnessed it, didn't know where the next meal was coming from. That's how bad it was. And I think it was entirely necessary. And for me, forget Lee and Everett, for me, if if I have one big disappointment uh, with the last seven years of the presidency, it's that that, that, that truth, I speaking noticed, truth um, to power, didn't happen in that context. I noticed Lee's Twitter account this morning said that she'd sent a letter to mm-hmm. Michael D. Higgins asking him to explain various uh, expenditures, uh, I think, the security in his home was one the upkeep of his private garden was another and this morning I bumped into somebody in the Labour Party who who said that they noticed that and they said oh look you know I see the shinners are coming at us hard in the last few days because they're afraid they're not going to get their expenses back they're not going to do well and they're trying to motivate their base by attacking the Labour Party and Michael Lee's Labour Party figure is there some validity to that that claim? Well I mean um The Labour Party uh, would say that, wouldn't Mm. they? I mean, of course you're going to try and... Of course we will try and encourage people to come out and and vote. But, I mean, the issue of the expenses, the issue of the €317,000 allowance, which, by the way, I didn't know until all of this um, controversy arose, was actually increased by Bertie O'Hearn specifically to enable the McAleese's to do more work with people from the north. I didn't know that. I now know that. In any event, that money is there. The Uchtaran is perfectly within their rights to make decisions and calls in terms of the allocation and spending of that. But equally, the public have a right to know because it's public money. Where did it go? What Mm. was it, it spent on? And the easy way around all of this is simply for that information to be put into the public domain before the election. So you're not necessarily against the allowance per se. Well, no, I, th- I think any of these, if, you, if you were to analyse it and say that it was being spent mm. on, you know, crazy stuff, well, then obviously you'd say, mm. well, is that is that mm. wise? But our first step has to be, what's it being spent on? Um, I accept absolutely that the Uchtaran has to have a budget. I accept the logic of an allowance that's, that, that is free from from the, the control or influence of others because it gives a, an independence and, and a scope to the office. But the issue here isn't so much the existence of the allowance, it's what was it spent on and why in the name of God mm. is it that we can't know? I mean, I'm fairly sure that they're tight enough within the operation of the RS that they know what it was spent on. So just share that information with the general public. And by the way, just to answer our friends in the Labour Party, this isn't something that we brought up. Mm. This is something that has arisen in the course of the campaign. And I think it's something that Michael D simply has to put to bed and put to bed before people what, what, go out What would vote. you measure as a success for Sinn Féin this election? Um, I, well, I would hope that our vote, our core voting base would come out uh, and vote, mm. firstly, come out and actually cast their their uh, their first preference vote uh, for Leah. But for me... Um, the most important thing in, in the midst of all of this was actually to contest the election. Mm. Um, I, I personally and from the get-go was deeply uncomfortable with the idea that Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar, having colonised both government and opposition benches in their confidence and supply agreement, would go further mm. and decide who the Uchtaran would be. Did you say the core vote 
Are you talking well, 12, you, 14 percent? You, 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 ha- you have all this polling data. Mm. I'm happy to wait and see mm. how the, is how the, the dice falls. Just, just to get some from clarity from, from you on this, that Sinn Féin, I think, do deserve credit that they're the only one of the large significant mm. parties in the Dáil to actually you know, put forward a candidate for the presidency, their own candidate for the presidency this time. But when you look at those polls, a majority of even Sinn Féin voters mm. uh, indicate that they want to vote for Michael D. Higgins. So if, if that turns out to be the case on Friday or when we count the votes on Saturday, can this particular process we seem to have backfired to some extent for that's the that's the, the you hear that chatter around the place that Sinn Féin was ideally hoping for maybe 20% of the vote or more to expand their base that generally votes them on local election day general election day but they may fall short of that and that it may not have been the success that Mary Lou wanted it to be so I'm just keen on her views on that you know you if you, you fell short and if you didn't get your if you didn't reach the quarter of the quota wouldn't be a good day well, would listen, it? Actually we were uh, hoping to go out and to contest mm. and in the best of circumstances to actually win and mm. to have Leonoria the more Uthoran Nua Dara Nua. That's what you do. You go out and you pay you foolhardy. You couldn't sustain an activist base to go out and fight a, a campaign for the sake of it. There's no point in fighting if, if you, you don't, don't believe, think you're going to win. If you don't, absolutely. Politics is like sport in that regard. And you don't accept uh, because you're up against a very classy team or an ace striker that you pack your kit bag and you go home and weep into your pillow. This is, this is about the, the whole process of uh, political development for Sinn Féin, mm. um, broadening the, the political debate is all about being engaged and being active. So... I am. I have no regrets in the fact that we are contesting this election, um, and we will work on until the very end for every last vote. Your and who pol- knows? Maybe there'll be a surprise. Your, These elections. Your political opponents would mutter darkly in the corridors as they always do that this will be Mary Lou's first big call, and it may go against her. Well, look, they're going to mutter darkly about me either way. I mean, they have to. If if some of them, if they didn't have dark mutterings to mutter, would they be rendered mute? So I'm quite happy for them to mutter away. I'll get on and do my job as the leader of Sinn Féin. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control. Your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. There's not much muttering going on about uh, the constitutional crisis, which the UK has thrown us all into with the with the Brexit process. Sinn Féin's position on the border poll, after a little bit of wobbling or uncertainty, seems fairly clear now. Is it really wise right now to be calling for a border poll? Well... I'm not going to debate with you, was there a wobble, was there not a wobble? We've been very, I mean, we're Irish Republicans. We want a referendum on unity and we want to win it. I I mean, I I just don't know how that has at any stage been unclear. The issue of the border poll I raised with uh, Mrs May last Monday. And I had actually raised it with her before. And I'd set out for her the following scenario. If it is a case that by accident or design that Britain crashes out of the European Union, or if we have what's being called a hard Brexit, then she will have no option but to very speedily put the constitutional question to the people. I have explained to her, and I had explained this to her before, by the way, that it would be unconscionable 
to introduce that level of damage and jeopardy to our island and imagine that we would just take it on the chin and carry on regardless. Uh, She doesn't accept that analysis. You may not be hugely surprised uh, to hear. But I think I'm telling you this piece of information simply to set the context for and the atmosphere in which now the border poll or the referendum on unity needs to be considered. Now, let me say this. As and when we achieve a referendum, I want us to win it and I want us to win it well. And winning it well means an inclusive, respectful debate. It means doing everything that we can for our part as Republicans to maximise consent, to actually to listen as much as talk in the course of this debate and then to have the constitutional question resolved, uh, to have an ending to partition and then which will trigger bigger uh, discussions around public service provision, uh, around just about every system that we have island-wide. And I think the irresponsible thing to do is not to understand or to say out loud or to introduce into the public discourse the fact that the border now is front and centre again a century, almost a century later and that the issue of constitutional change is in the air and that these conversations are happening. Well, correct happening me, correct me if I'm the wrong. The constitutional position post-Good Friday Agreement is that it's within the remit ultimately of the Northern Secretary yes. uh, on the basis of there being a reasonable supposition or some evidence that, su- that such a poll might be, you know, might be passed or that there was a groundswell of support, I suppose, an increase in support for, for a united mm-hmm. Ireland. Now, whether or not that exists right now is probably, is probably a moot point. And isn't there also the case that in this febrile atmosphere that we have at the moment um, across... Of both of these islands, that it's most unlikely or more, even more difficult than, than it would be in, in times of more calm to actually have that conversation which you referred to there, that listening to the other side, that moving out of the entrenched in camps, mm-hmm. that this is the worst possible time to have that debate or to force the timing of that debate to have such a poll. Well, on the Secretary of State, you're right. I mean, the, the, <clears throat> the agreement attributes to that person to, to Karen Bradley, as as we speak now. Um, the With her deep knowledge of Northern politics, as indeed, we know from recent well, interviews. I, I left that line to, to yourself, which you delivered with considerable mm. aplomb. So it, it falls... The, rea- the reality is a decision on a border poll would be taken in number 10. The Secretary of State is not going to be making that call. We have asked uh, Karen to set out for us what her understanding of the thresholds would be that would necessitate or lead her to conclude that a border poll was necessary. She hasn't given us that information. I think they need to come clean and they need to state openly what that would be. And let's consider this. Consider that a majority in the north of Ireland voted to remain. There is no consent to Brexit from the north of Ireland. Consider that uh, the polling data, and I accept that it's not sacrosanct, but it, it signals that if there were to be a referendum in the morning, that an even greater majority across both communities would be steady in its resolve to remain. They do not wish to leave. That represents a big material change. But then consider uh, the terrible vista, if it were to happen, and I hope it doesn't, of a crash or a hard Brexit with everything that that entails not just in trading terms, but in terms of access to services, uh, in terms of citizens' rights, all of that, the, the disruption that it would represent to the entire edifice that is the Good Friday Agreement. I believe that in those circumstances, that represents such a dramatic 
change of circumstances, um, that it would be in and of itself a sufficient trigger for, say, for the you referendum you to happen. Do you, you don't want that to happen. That's the worst case scenario, that, but that would then trigger a border poll. Yeah. So would you prefer to see a second referendum in the UK on the terms of exit, including remain as an option instead of hard Brexit, no deal Brexit leading to a border poll? Which would you prefer? So, and let me just make this point clear. In any event, I believe we're advancing towards a border poll. Mm. Why do I say that? Now, I'm no demographer, but the mm. demographics tell us that within a very short space of time that the the balance will have changed in the northern population. The election results tell us that on the last two occasions, as you know, the unionist uh, vote dipped beneath the 50%, uh, which is, of course, the basis of partition and the existence of the northern state. But more importantly, for my purposes, there is a sense right across the island of Ireland of a demand now for progressivity and for social change. So on the issue of marriage equality, on the issue of abortion Mm. rights, it is no coincidence that activists north to south worked Mm. collaboratively on this issue. It's of of no surprise to me that when the result on the eighth referendum was announced in Dublin Castle, that the first cheer to go from the crowd do you want was to, the North is next. What would you prefer? So we're second. heading there anyway. My my strong preference is that this happens in a way that is as calm and as stable as is possible. Does that mean a second referendum? I think what it means is um, achieving what's called the backstop arrangement achieving uh, the necessary protections for Irish livelihoods, mm. for for uh, the stability and the the edifice of, of so Good Friday. In, instead of you see the backstop as the optimal solution rather than the EU reversing, or the UK reversing its decision and remaining in the EU? Well, well, we have to we have to look at this through an Irish lens because that's our first responsibility. Mm. I don't represent people in Britain. Mm. I didn't have I didn't have a vote in the referendum. Mm. It, it, it it's for them to mm. decide ultimately, really, whether or not they want to go for a second but referendum. Many of your voters that's in Northern Ireland that's, Oh, absolutely. That's their that's their call. Oh no, absolutely, yeah. they will make that call. And I'm very conscious that there were huge numbers out in London, mm. huge numbers out in Belfast, and that there is a sentiment around that. I'm not sure that it's going to happen. But that's that's that. We have to start from first principles, and that is that we have to protect Ireland. So that means that we cannot countenance any withdrawal agreement, much less a future relationship agreement, that does not protect the Good Friday Agreement in all of its parts, that does not ensure no hardening of the border, and that does not protect, this is a critical part, citizens' rights in the North. Those are the bottom lines. I want to see that achieved. We we argued in the Dáil, you'll recall this, Fiat, Uh, at a time when other people said, no, you can't get special status or a special arrangement for the North. You may remember we were arguing that way back because we knew that was necessary. I'm very glad that others, particularly the government, have come, came around to that position and have held firm on it. And I want to encourage them to remain firm on that and Michel Barnier and his, his team. We all know that the circumstances for our island are specific, are unique, and that we need a bespoke solution. So that's what I want. And today, actually tomorrow, our MEPs are meeting with Michelle Barnier. We've worked very hard on this. So we want to achieve this. A border poll is going to happen. It will happen, in my view, uh, within the next uh, five to ten years in any event. I think a hard Brexit would would speed up that process. Um but be in no doubt that we want to protect people's livelihoods 
and and the 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 stability that everybody values. I, I suppose I wonder. I'm just kind of trying to Sorry. interpret Fiat's question in a way. Because part of my job here is to interpret what Fiat's what Fiat mm. is saying. And you know, there are there are three possible outcomes here, uh, or three possible paths here, and each one of them offers different threats and opportunities from the point of view of, of Irish Republicans, for example. <clears throat> one would be if the United Kingdom suddenly changed its mind and decided it was going to remain within the Euro- European Union. Well, then we're in the status quo ante mm. and things remain as they are. Yeah. Um, if there is a a, a Brexit, but with a proper backstop arrangement mm-hmm. that, conti- that that maintains frictionless movement between North and South. In a way, that's a move forward towards the concept of, of a single entity of uh, on the island of Ireland in a way that wasn't previously. And then the third one is this crisis, crash out of Brexit, worst constitutional crisis the United Kingdom has faced since 1918, or rather since 1913 mm-hmm. or something, probably. And in a way that that's the classic, you know, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity mm-hmm. way of looking at that. So which of of those, each of those are different paths. Which of those is is most attractive to Sinn Féin? Well, the the attractive uh, landing point of all of this is an ending of partition democratically, peacefully, and the building of a new Ireland. All of which needs to be constructed in our minds and and then and then agreed and and implemented. Look, we we didn't in, we didn't come up with Brexit. Mm. The Brexit thing is a Tory thing, and I've, I've said you know uh, very many times people who would be critical of the European Union like me. I mean, I'd be deeply critical of the the, the manner in which a, a particular economic orthodoxy is hardwired into the basic law of the Union. I have a problem with that. Um, foreign policy, the threats to neutrality, I could list them. I won't. You'll be relieved to hear. But um, I was always very clear because I listened to the Tories as they constructed the Brexit argument. It wasn't, uh, you know, striking out in the interests of the working woman or man or a sense of liberation for the working classes. This is about a group of posh boys in the Tories uh, looking to grab uh, power back. It was like a, a rule Britannia old empire view which, of things. Which, which, which route, though, do you prefer as an Irish Republican? What is the optimal landing point? Is it remain, backstop or hard Brexit? At this point in time, uh, you will know, Fiuk, mm. that we are working might and main on the issue of the backstop. We want an arrangement an agreement that protects Ireland. You've heard me. I'm sure you're mm. probably bored listening to me mm. raising that again and again. And just to say, we've made it very clear to the government, although we disagree mm. with them on so many things, mm. that on this issue, uh, they need to get it right. Mm. We have to get it right and that we will use... And is there any, is there any danger that, that your answer to Fiat's question there goes to feed a suspicion on the unionist side in particular that the backstop is a circuitous back road? It's more than a backstop, it's a back road to Irish unity. Well, look, I think what unionism needs to, to understand is that the Good Friday Agreement set out lots of things, not just institution things, but common understandings around identity and citizenship. And it recognises that the border is a contested border Mm. and it offers the remedy for that, the the route for deciding uh, all of that. And I'm conscious that lots of unions, people didn't vote for Brexit and are horrified at the concept of it. But the DUP argues might and main for it in a way that I regard to be utterly reckless I will never fully understand how uh, Arlene Foster, representing the farmers of Fermanagh, could in any way regard Brexit as welcome news, but she does. Um, And she has to be accountable and answerable for that. Uh, We have met with interests right across Northern society and we have made it clear that whereas we make no secret of our constitutional ambitions, um, 
that we also recognise that we have a huge responsibility to protect people's livelihoods, their capacity to put bread on the table, to protect farming, to protect the universities uh, in the north and people's access to it. I mean, they're they're very, very concerned with what's going to happen around Brexit and, and, and. So the backstop, you can, you can look at it in the way that you've described and say, well, this is just a ruse by Republicans to get to where they want to be. And you can take that view if you wish, or you can take a more, I would suggest, more pragmatic and real world view that says, if your universities are telling you, if your farmers are telling you, if business is telling you, if the community and voluntary sector is telling you, if the trade unions are telling you, if the people on the ground are telling you that Brexit is bad news, well then the wise thing to do is to find an accommodation that actually protects people. The position remains the same for Sinn Féin that you will not take your seats in Westminster under any circumstances to vote for a Brexit deal or a second mm-hmm. referendum. That remains the position. Yes. Can I ask as, as well, I was struck by the when you visited uh, London last week, yourself and Michelle and you've, you've talked about speaking to Theresa May, and I think he used the phrase, um, the to- I think it's a toxic deal is what you call the arrangement mm-hmm. between the DUP and the Conservatives. Does that not create a fear then that if you realise your ambition to be in government in Dublin after the next election, that the DUP can say there's a toxic deal for Irish unity in place between Fine Gael and Sinn Féin or Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin? How do you reconcile your position, what you've described, what the DUP are doing, which is basically what you want to do in Dublin as well? Well, no, I, I have said, I, I think, very many times uh, that I don't regard confidence and supply as a sense of coalition. Coalition would not be a toxic deal the DUP. So th- here's the toxic piece uh, of the arrangement. Uh, the toxicity derives from the fact that the DUP uh, have made a kind of Faustian pact with Mrs May, uh, which in the, on the one hand keeps her in number 10, mm for now, and on the other hand uh, ensures that a whole series of rights, very basic things that are enjoyed in the rest of Ireland and the island of Britain are denied citizens in the north. A toxic pact that has allowed the DUP to hide at Westminster because, be very clear, they have no intention and they have no interest in re-establishing the institutions uh, pre-Brexit. That, that is for absolute sure. Mrs May has allowed that situation to prevail. She has done nothing to incentivise, to encourage the DUP to do the right thing and to get back to government in the north. And it is for that reason that we describe it as utterly toxic. It's toxic because it has uh, hold below the water government in the north of Ireland. We arranged, we arrived at a, an accommodation which was not perfect. I, I've told big meetings of of, of na- Northern Ashes, it was not perfect. We would have been criticised uh, because it wasn't perfect and some of those criticisms would have been absolutely valid. But we arrived at a position where it was my firm view that we had enough, we had a sufficiency to get things back and the DUP walked away. And it is now very, very clear to me that they walked away because they're not in the business of re-establishing good government in the North. That's not on their agenda. What's on their agenda is Westminster, Mrs May, and trying to use for the short term whatever hold they have on her to advance an agenda that's purely about them and that certainly isn't about anybody back home. If we could shift focus a bit back to the the doll, uh, if you don't mind, 
Do you feel any regret about some of the things he said about Francis Fitzgerald a year ago in the in the chamber, given the findings of the Disclosures Tribunal? Um, I think that Francis is a very, very fine parliamentarian and a very fine person. I've always admired her as 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 a person who is very pro-woman and feminist in her outlook. I've always liked that about her long before I, I ever made her acquaintance. At the time in question, when the Maris McCabe uh, controversy raged, and bear in mind, I was on the PSC, so I, I had a front row viewing of, of all of this as it unfolded. Um, it was very clear to me from the outset that the man was being wronged. It was very clear to me that the entire establishment had closed ranks on him. Um, it was clear, and if you listen back to any of those committee hearings, that we were getting the blank wall treatment, very little by way of accountability or answers and so on and so on. And so the story unfolded and and various people were re- resigned and, and, and the story moves on. And then we come to Francis, Francis's uh, difficulties uh, in, in the Dáil. I mean, just bear in mind that the Taoiseach had to correct the record of the Dáil, I think, five times. Uh, bear in mind that emails uh, had to be sought on his direction and instruction. Bear in mind that those emails hadn't been provided uh, to Charlton uh, but for that turn of events. And at the time, uh, I did what I believed to be the right thing because it is my job, without fear or favour, to hold government to account. And I think most particularly in circumstances where Morris had been so, there was a a... a, a an absolute attempt to entirely discredit the man and to destroy him. We now know that. That's not speculative. That happened. And I take the view that uh, everybody who was party to that, Angarda Shikona, the Justice Minister's current and past, so by that I mean Charlie Flanagan, but I also mean Francis Fitzgerald, um, and the department, I think all of them are, owe this man an apology. I suppose the suggestion has been taking that all, all on board, Fiac, and actually, you know, the criticism of the Irish political system over many years has been that people don't resign enough. And in other, you know, political areas, people are forced to resign because of what went on in their department because they're ultimately responsible for the department. But in relation to this particular issue around the emails and mm. who knew what surrounding the, uh, some, of this, some of this stuff, Frances Fitzgerald is vindicated mm. in terms of her own personal responsibility. She was in no way implicated, in fact, quite, you know, quite the contrary. Yeah, I think that the Tribunal Report found that she shouldn't have intervened in the legal strategy at, at the... And didn't. Uh, and didn't, and it wouldn't have been her place to do so. Um, but I think the argument you make there is what Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil have been making in the last week or two as well, that she was in charge of the department, which was openly criticised on the floor of the House by the Taoiseach at that time. He, I think he said it was dysfunctional as far as I remember yeah, that at that time right. and that their argument is it was a political while in under a balanced tribunal system and if this was a, were a court of law, Francis Fitzgerald would be cleared and vindicated but it wasn't. It was politics and under political systems that the Minister at times is held responsible for the failings of his or her department and that is something we see for example, just across the way in London, you see that quite regularly, that there's failings in a department, the minister goes. Mm. Now, they are they can be shuttled back into positions of power relatively quickly. I think Peter Mandelson was in a cabinet more times than anybody can care to remember at a certain time. So maybe this is Ireland moving towards a normal kind of system of cabinet accountability. Well, the implication at the time of Francis Fitzgerald's departure was not that, it was that, it was that she had done something wrong. 
It was that she had done something wrong and I think she was accused uh, of basically not of sitting on her hands when she shouldn't have. The, the accusation, I think you might have made it, Mary Lou, that she should have intervened at the time, that it was in her remit to do so. And the government argument always was that it wasn't, that the advice from the AG was that she shouldn't have. And I think on so, that score, on that score, Charlton has said that she was correct. And here, here's a problem, and this mm. isn't just particular to this case. The advice of the Attorney General is not shared mm. with members of the opposition. The Attorney General works for the government. Um, and while... As a general rule of thumb, that might be okay. There are occasions where I think it would be preferable, helpful, useful for the government to voluntarily, not as a matter of obligation, but to voluntarily share that uh, that information. The other thing to bear in mind is this is politics. Mm. This is politics, folks. And uh, I mean, I could list and play my little violin uh, of times that... I have been unfairly criticised or, 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 and I'm sure as could every probably member of the, or any, certainly anybody who's regularly on their feet, any political leader could list uh, list that. And that's that's kind of how it is, as they say, this is, uh, what do they call it? Senior hurling. Senior hurling. The sometimes, the, the, the you just have to, sometimes you just yeah. have to take your knocks, even though you may consider that it's utterly unfair utterly untrue, completely wrong. There are just moments where, where that happens in any political career. For Francis, it was in a set of circumstances so outrageous mm. in terms of the scandal around McCabe that um, that her position, and bear in mind she resigned, she wasn't fired, but the position just became untenable. Moving on from senior hurling to another extended metaphor, this is rather ungainly dance has begun between the uh, leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as to whether confidence and supply continues. Um, are you feeling a bit like a wallflower as that dance goes on, or will you be <laughs> looking? Will you be looking to Foxtrot or, or Tango in the in the, in the months um, to come? Do you envisage yourself on the floor? I, I think I, I was listening to the, the whole, uh, I suppose, theme, uh, which. Uh, the, the, these new negotiations are posited on is is that of stability. You know, we need stability. I'm, of course we need stable government. Yes, absolutely. And not least because of Brexit. I absolutely accept that. But I think the reality is that the confidence and supply arrangement is inherently unstable because it rests on three... Uh, it's a three-legged stool. So you have Fine Gael, you have Fianna Fáil and you have the independents. So anything that's made up of that kind of chemistry... Uh, is inherently something that can go can go south on you at any time. Michal Martin uh, tries to make much of the fact that they have been loyal partners and that they were sincere around their desire for stability. I, I challenged both men in, in the doll last week and I challenged them again uh, that if they are that interested in stability, and let's face it, there isn't a huge policy divide between these guys. They're singing very much from the same hymn sheet. So they should be in coalition together, just in, in my view. <laughs> it's like it's the ultimate proof that just... You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So if, 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 the, if the core issue is stability, form, form a government. Fianna Fáil should cross the floor of the House and sit properly uh, in government. And if not, the stable, the stability thing to do is actually to go back to the people, get a fresh mandate and then to form a government, a stable government from whatever emerges from that. Do you hope, intend to be in that government after that next election? Well, I, I as want... A, as a government, I want in a coalition? Sinn, I want Sinn Féin to be in government. Uh, I mean, not at any price. It's not, you know, 
one of these things that it's about, you know, bums on the seats of Mercs. Do they still drive Mercs? Whatever they drive. drive Skodas, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, or, you know, Nissan Micras or whatever the case may be. Keisha's um, a very nice BMW though. I've seen it a few times, you know. He's saying that, listeners, with a look of <laughs> yeah. deep jealousy. Yeah, he is, yeah. So it, it, it is about, it's about, first of all, we have to get a sufficient mandate and I don't take that for granted. Elections are tough. You have to go out and, and win the support of people. And then it's all about the programme for government. So people ask sometimes, well, who is the ideal partner for you in government? The truth is neither Fianna Fáil nor Fine Gael are ideal. That's just the fact of the matter. Mary Lou McDonald, thanks very much. And that is it for today's show. Thanks to Mary Lou and also to Fiac for joining us today. Thanks to our producers, Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan. And remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.